In this three-part series, we've been looking at the Messiah, the, the notions and the expectations of a Messiah at the time of Jesus. In part one, the last video, we looked at the origins of these expectations and these passages in the Hebrew Bible, and we're tracing them through time, and now we're entering the, the generation of Jesus. And in this second video, we will look at what Jews at the time of Jesus, uh, how they uh, interpreted these passages and what their expectations were. And we'll also look at, we'll take a, take a look at what Josephus says about different messiahs running around and how they were treated by Rome. This tells us a lot about Jesus and, uh, and his messianic world. So follow me, let's go to Jerusalem. One thing I forgot to mention in the first video, and this is very important, I should have mentioned it there, but when I teach my students in a, in a class on basically an introduction to the Bible, but what I do early in the semester is I teach two full sessions on the Messiah. And I tell them that if I was asked to teach only two sessions, all I had was two, two sessions, what would I teach? The answer is the Messiah. If people understood the messianic expectations at the time of Jesus, what Jews thought about the Messiah, what they expected of the Messiah. If we just understand that aspect alone, our understanding of the, of the New Testament and the Jesus traditions will skyrocket. So this is very important. That's why I do this early in the semester. And so hopefully these three videos will help us get uh, to appreciate the world of Jesus and the, Messi uh, the Messianic interpretations and anticipations during that generation. In the last video, we ended with traditions about the Son of Man, what that meant, what that term meant, who was talking about it. Alongside those Son of Man traditions are a number of other Messianic traditions in other, in, we see them in early Jewish texts. Perhaps the most prominent Messianic theme among these texts is the idea that the Son of Man will descend from the tribe of Judah through David. So in Genesis 49 and Isaiah 11, these passages serve as the primary sources for this idea. So in Genesis 49, it says, the scepter, that's a Messianic language, king, kingship language. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And then in Isaiah 11 it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Many Jews during this era, during the generation of Jesus, and right before, interpreted these passages messianically. For example, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a commentary on the book of Genesis. It's actually, this is one of the first biblical commentaries that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This, was, this text was found in Cave 4 at Qumran, and it maintained that this future Judahite king would be the righteous Messiah, the branch of David. The Psalms of Solomon, this is a mid-1st century BC text. This text harks back to 2 Samuel 7, wherein God promises David that his offspring will be God's son, if you remember that passage, and will establish an everlasting throne. And it's what it says there, See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. Another a common theme or emergent theme, messianic theme in early Jewish texts is that the Messiah would have a worldwide following and worldwide authority. He will be praised universally by all people. In this role, the Messiah will judge the wicked and punish Israel's enemies. Several Dead Sea texts, for example, assert that heaven and earth shall listen to his Messiah. And another text states that the rulers of Israel will sit before him and that others will be handed over to the sword when the Messiah comes. 
Also in the Psalms of Solomon, the Messiah will lead the righteous and will have Gentile nations serving him under his yoke. And he will expose officials and drive out sinners. Another text, Sibylline Oracles, which is another first century BC text, declares that God will send a king who will stop the entire earth from evil war, killing some, imposing oaths of loyalty on others. The expectation of a warrior Messiah who would fight Israel's foreign enemies may have been justified based on uh, Isaiah 45. So in this passage, again, this is the only time that the word Messiah is mentioned in Isaiah. It says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to his Messiah, Mashiach, to Cyrus, remember Cyrus of Persia, whose right hand have I, gra I have grasped to subdue nations before him. So this language here might serve as a as an idea that the Messiah will be a warrior figure who will subdue the nations. Some Jews, particularly those at Qumran, as we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, also expected the Messiah to perform miracles. One Dead Sea Scroll text, also found in K4, states the following. His Messiah will honor the pious upon the throne of his eternal kingdom, setting prisoners free, opening the eyes of the blind, raising up those who are bowed down. He shall heal the critically wounded, shall revive the dead, and he shall send good news to the afflicted. So now we get uh, texts that are closer to the time of Jesus that kind of shows the, the miraculous aspects of the Messiah. It seems clear from, from all these sources that it was during the first two centuries before Jesus' ministry that the idea of a divine agent of God who would redeem Israel, delivering them from bondage, became more widely accepted, or at least more apparent, among the Jewish population. Whatever earlier Israelites believed, about the nature of the future agent of God who would destroy the wicked and redeem Israel, it seems that by the beginning of Jesus' ministry, some Jews had high expectations for the one they called Messiah, Son of God, or Son of Man. These generic terms in earlier centuries were later used as titles for one specific individual who would redeem Israel. This divine agent of God would not be a Messiah, but the Messiah. Not just a Son of God, but the Son of God. Not just a king, but the king of kings. Not just a son of man, but the son of man. So let us recap what we learned from pre-Christian Jewish texts regarding messianic expectations leading up to the ministry of Jesus. And these, are, these aren't found among all people, but we find this in the literature scattered around, and there's a spectrum of belief in the Messiah. But here's, here's what they are. Number one, he would be a pre-existent figure with some divine qualities, and to others he was just a human warrior king. All people would worship him, he would be a king, he would reestablish the Davidic dynasty, his kingdom would be everlasting, he would have authority over all nations, he would lead Israel, specifically Israel, he would judge the wicked and overthrow Israel's foreign enemies, he would be associated with righteousness, and he would heal the sick, restore sight to the blind, and raise the dead. The question I have for my students is, what is, what is the one expectation missing in this list that Christians would assume should be on the list? The answer is that the Messiah would be humiliated, subdued by his enemies, embarrassed by his enemies, and killed. A humiliated Messiah. That is not in this list. It does show maybe a few places, but overwhelming expectations do not have that. So again, we must, we must be careful not to assume that all Jews expected the Messiah to, to be and do all of these things. Some Jews may have expected some of these outcomes while rejecting others. So this list is simply a conglomeration of what is apparent in pre-Christian Jewish texts regarding Messianic expectations. 
So there is one text, I should mention, there is one text that seems to suggest that the Messiah would be killed, and this is 4th Ezra. This is a first late first century text, and it says, For my son the Messiah shall be revealed with those who are with him, and those who remain shall rejoice 400 years. And after these years, my son the Messiah shall die, and all who draw human breath. This is an ambiguous text. You know, in this text, the Messiah will not be humiliated and killed by his enemies, but will die alongside with all other humans after 400 years. Further, this text dates to the first century CE. and may not, so in other words, it might not tell us much about messianic expectations in the two centuries preceding Jesus's ministry. So we have to be careful with that. Some scholars or even just non-scholars may challenge the conclusion that early Jews did not expect a suffering defeated Messiah. And they do this by pointing to, some might do this by pointing to the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53, verses three through seven. It's the most contested verses in the Hebrew Bible. Between, he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with uh, infirmity. And as one from, who, from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and, he, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we account him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid, upon, laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, was, that before it shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Okay, there's five verses. And this is very contested. Jewish commentators in late antiquity and throughout the Middle Ages disagreed on the nature of the servant in Isaiah. Some interpreted this to be referring to the Messiah and others to Israel. Regardless, it seems that this messianic prophecy was overshadowed by the many other expectations of a victorious Messiah in the two centuries leading up to, to Jesus. Scholars of Messianism have shown through extensive examination that all of the messianic passages in pre-Christian Jewish texts that the idea of a suffering Messiah was virtually non-existent. We must note that Daniel 9 refers to an anointed one, a Mashiach, who will be cut off and shall have nothing. But it is also ambiguous whether this passage suggests that this figure will be humiliated and ultimately killed. Could it be that this figure will be defeated for a time and then, and then after that conquer his foes? We don't know. What we can say is that the few passages in the Hebrew Bible, like this one in Daniel 9, are overshadowed a great deal in other early Jewish text by a victorious Messiah. That the Messianic expectations did not include a suffering, dying Messiah is crucial. This is very crucial to understanding the events immediately following Jesus' death. We must remember that not all Jews held a normative set of beliefs about the Messiah's divine status, whether he was divine or mortal. Nor did all Jews uniformly expect the Messiah to accomplish a specific set of tasks. As we have seen, the various Jewish texts predating Jesus posited a wide variety of messianic expectations and ideas about the divine status of a future Messiah. All of these expectations were exacerbated with the oppression and corruption of the ruling class. So we have all these expectations, but it's, it's, it's heightened when there's corruption. And so let's explain some of this. In the second century BCE, or BC, expectations of a king deliverer flourished for three major reasons. First, Oppression from Greek overlords intensified, culminating in the desecration of the temple. And this is in 164 BC. Number two, uh, when Jewish fighters wrested Judea and the temple away from the Greeks, this is uh, led by a family called the Hasmoneans, 
They controlled the throne, Jew, Jews controlled the throne from 142 to 63 BC. So although this was a great victory for Jews, the Hasmoneans were not descendants of David. Thus, the anticipated Davidic king would not come through the Hasmonean dynasty. Number three, the high priesthood was usurped and corrupted by wealthy non-Aaronid, or what we call non-people who did not descend from Aaron, so non-Aaronid aristocrats. So before and during the Hasmoneans, several individuals bought their way into the office of the high priest by offering to raise taxes on the Jewish people to stay in the good graces of their Greek overlords. So you can see how this is this corrupted the, the office of high priest. The Jewish populace witnessed, because of all of these reasons, they witnessed attacks on their religion and temple system from all sides, including from within. What this did is that it reduced the morale of the new autonomous Jewish state. And this worsened and messianic expectations intensified when the Romans, with the help of some Jews, swept in and dethroned the Hasmonean dynasty in 63. What happened is that Rome eventually appointed an illegitimate Jewish, like a half-Jew dictator as a local ruler. And who was this? Well, this was Herod the Great. Jews did this with the approval from Rome and Herod ruled with an iron fist. According to Josephus, Herod set up a spy network to cleanse the puppet kingdom of Hasmonean loyalists and sympathizers. Herod executed numerous people whom he suspected of opposing him. So these victims included people like his brother-in-law, the high priest. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his second wife. He killed three of his sons. And he also slaughtered 300 military leaders who were loyal to, to the Hasmoneans or to, to, to prior uh, administrations. The populace did not escape corruption and the violence continued even after Herod died. On many occasions, crowds of Jewish citizens protested injustices that they thought were perpetrated on them. So here's one example. When Pontius Pilate, the Roman authority of the region from 26 to 36, we all know Pilate, he brought Caesar's effigies, images of Caesar into Jerusalem and possibly into the temple complex with the approval from the priestly class. And because of this, a multitude, a Jewish multitude, nearly rioted and demanded that Pilate remove the effigies. Uh, and then he threatened them. On another occasion, priests permitted Pilate to use funds from the temple treasury to pay for an aqueduct into Jerusalem. And when uh, the protest ensued, Pilate dispatched soldiers and, and uh, threatened the crowds with swords that they would kill them. Also, we have the festival seasons. The population of Jerusalem during these festival seasons swelled dramatically, which caused the authorities uh, a lot of angst. Uh, so on several occasions, for example, the crowds protested in opposition to Roman and Jewish authorities. The bureaucrats themselves, obviously because of this, they feared such protests and riots because they would be, they, what they needed to do is to keep peace in the region. Otherwise, Caesar would be infuriated with them and, and throw them out. Josephus actually provided a few examples of such protests during uh, these festivals. In the early first century BC, a crowd a large crowd protested against the high priest at the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. It seems that they rejected the priest because he was not a descendant of Aaron. After people in the crowd threw objects at the high priest, lots of different, they were throwing um, things that they had specifically for the, uh, the feast, they threw them at him. Because of that, he called in the soldiers and killed 6,000 protesters. Josephus related another protest that occurred in the first century CE during Passover when a Roman soldier raised his robe, exposing his backside, or according to a second account, uncovered his genitals and, ex and exhibited them, is what he, that's the precise terms that Josephus used, and he did this to the Jewish crowd. Well, obviously, during the sacred time of uh, worship at Passover, 
the Jews, Jewish crowd didn't like it, and they erupted in a protest, and soldiers were brought in, and they killed uh, no fewer than 20,000 people. Jewish pilgrims and worshipers were slaughtered. So what this tells us is that the festivals were times of volatility. Passover especially invited protests because the festival commemorated Israel's deliverance from a foreign oppressor in Egypt during the Exodus. Many Jews during Passover anticipated a similar deliverance over a foreign oppressor under the Messiah. Moses delivered the people the first time and the Messiah would deliver the people the second time or this time. So what we can see is that if an individual entered Jerusalem during Passover with an entourage and claimed to be the Messiah or the son of David, that individual would be in the crosshairs of, so to speak, of the soldiers. And that's precisely what happened to Jesus. So in the face of all this oppression and corruption, a more intense messianic fervor spread throughout uh, the Jewish, uh, Jewish nation. So in the two centuries before the ministry of Jesus, most Jews greatly anticipated the Messiah, who would be a Davidic king and deliverer of Israel. And so what this means is that by the time, what we see in the literature is that by the time Jesus began his ministry, messianic expectations had reached a fever pitch. And so here's, so here's a few examples of this. After Herod died in 4 BC, the regions of Judea and Galilee experienced an increase in messianic personalities. These are different people who had uh, messianic or king, kingly aspirations. Prior to Herod's death, hope of a conquering Messiah seemed to be kind of a distant hope. But in the first century, the realization of the Messiah seemed imminent for, you know, for much of the populace, especially in response to the Roman authoritarian and militaristic governing style. Uh, Josephus, what we see in Josephus is that there's many, many people, he, he, he details at least a dozen figures in the first century alone who acted in ways that caused portions of the populace to, to view them as possible messiahs or messianic candidates. And Josephus explained that many of these figures were declared king by their followers and were seen as nuisances to Roman authorities. You gotta remember that only the Roman Senate could make someone king. For example, they made Herod the Great a vassal king of the Judean frontier. Anyone who designated themselves or whose followers designated them as kings would have been considered treasonous and subject to severe, uh, severe punishment. Consequently, Jewish temple bureaucrats and the Roman officials attempted to quash any movement led by a king in their land, especially anyone who sought to wrest control of the region away from the Romans and the temple establishment. So you're toast if you try to, to even get near any of that, uh, those objectives. So here, let me give you a few examples. One such figure was Judas from Sepphoris. This is a town in Galilee, five miles from Nazareth. So in the wake of Herod's death, Judas gathered a sizable following and besieged several royal armories in 4 BC. Uh, he subsequently targeted other people who had royal aspirations, probably because he himself had his eye on the throne. And what happened after this is that the Roman general Varus in 4 BC swept in, captured a lot of these rebels, including you know, people who followed Judas, and they lined, Varus lined the 20-mile road from Sepphoris to the Sea of Galilee with 2,000 crucified Jewish rebels, 2,000 rebels. And since Nazareth was only three miles from Sephoris, it is likely that Jesus heard about this event from his parents and peers as he grew older and was taught about Rome and, and the role, their role in, in society. Jesus also would have walked this road to the Sea of Galilee, and he would have probably had these messianic or rebel uh, crucifixions in mind. That same year in 4 BC, there's a guy named Simon of Perea. 
he put a uh, crown on his head and declared himself king. And with some followers, people who thought he was the Messiah, he proceeded to burn several royal armories or, or properties, including the palace at Jericho. And what happened to him? Roman soldiers eventually intercepted and beheaded him. A few years later, in 2 BC, there's a, a certain guy who declared himself king and a shepherd. So he uses the shepherd imagery, declared himself king, and went about killing Roman soldiers and Jewish royalists until Roman, Roman authorities captured him and his what and then, then, then killed him. But what's key here is that his identification as a shepherd and a king was an overt statement about his messianic aspirations. So then we move, uh, we move a few decades later, we get John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you remember, established such a large following that he was imprisoned and eventually beheaded after ch challenging Herod Antipas. Josephus recorded that Herod was particularly concerned that John's power and influence with the populace would lead to rebellion. Neither Josephus nor the New Testament indicates that John was viewed as a Messiah, but I include him in this list because it's some likely, some people likely saw him as a messianic candidate due to his ability to garner support from the messianic-minded populace. About 10 years after John the Baptist's death, another figure gained a large following among the Samaritans in 30, this is 35 AD. These, are the, these Samaritans are people closely associated with Jews, both ideologically and geographically. Samaritans awaited a figure like Moses who would restore the ancient temple. This Samaritan prophet, we don't know his name, but this prophet promised to show his followers the holy vessels that Moses supposedly buried on their holy mountain, Mount Gerizim. What happened to him? Well, Pontius Pilate and his infantry attacked the group, killing some and arresting others. A decade later, in the mid-40s, a guy named Theodos, a prophet who was known for performing miracles, led a group to the Jordan River. And what he promised is that when they arrive at the river, he would divide the waters as had Joshua. When you promise to do something like Joshua, that speaks of military conquest, right? Because that's what Joshua did. Before the group even arrived at the, the Jordan River, Roman authorities attacked them, beheading Theudas and killing many of his followers. So that's important to note. At this time, Judas from Gamala in Galilee gathered a group and revolted against Rome in order to establish national independence. The group eventually failed. And what jo Josephus gives us the information, we, we, we read about this in Acts 5, 37, but also Josephus, he doesn't tell us about Judas's fate, but we learn that two of his sons were crucified uh, in 46 to 48, in consequence of this rebellion. Judas's third son, Menachem, also had similar kingly aspirations. There's another guy, an Egyptian prophet, and who came to the Mount of Olives and promised all of his followers that he would lead them down to the city, and on his command that the city would become theirs and the walls would fall down just like Joshua. And Roman authorities swept in, rushed to the temple, to the, to the Mount of Olives, and arrested over 600 people. And this, this guy, this unnamed prophet, escaped, fled, and nobody heard of him. I'll tell you about another individual here is Jesus, another guy named Jesus in the 60s. This guy named Jesus ben Ananias came to the Temple Mount during the Feast of Tabernacles in Sukkot, and he proclaimed judgment upon Jerusalem. But what's interesting about this guy is that he shouts, he shouts out quotations from Jeremiah 7, precisely the same block of scripture that Jesus of Nazareth used when he accused priests of turning the temple into a den of robbers. There's, there's that language in Jeremiah 7. So as they did with Jesus of Nazareth, they, the Roman authorities arrested this other Jesus and whipped him. And G Josephus says that they whipped him so much that his flesh gave way, exposing his bones. And then there's a few other figures in the 60s, uh, Menachem, another guy named John, and then there's another individual, Simon. And all these people were, they came into Jerusalem, took over the Roman barracks, put on royal robes and pretended, tried to be the king. And all of them were captured and beheaded and taken to Rome and executed. 
and, and a lot of their followers as well. So what these observations, what we gather a few observations from these texts, what they tell us is that from these 12 cases, this gives us a context for the ministry of Jesus and his ultimate demise. So first, Galilee, a lot of these people from, were from Galilee, and Galilee seemed to be a hotbed for messianic fervor in the first century. The majority of these figures come either from Galilee or close by. And even to this day, there's monuments and tombs of prominent rabbis and Jewish holy men in antiquity that pepper the landscape of the, of the, of the immediate vicinity of the Sea of Galilee. Another observation from all of these accounts uh, the, of these messianic type figures is the level of volatility between the Jewish populace and the authorities of Jerusalem, both, uh, both Jewish and Roman. These Messiah figures seemed to gain support from sizable segments within the Jewish populace and were met with swift punishment by Roman soldiers. So that's all for this video. Check out the third video in this series and also check out the other, other videos in my YouTube channel. Click subscribe and also like this video. And also check out uh, my book, A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. It'll give you many more details about these topics and others. Thank you.